Good morning, Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is 15 September 23. Let's get right into our second chapter in our uh, biomedical portrait on immunometabolic diseases. First of all, I'm going to do a very brief synopsis of what we heard in the first lecture, the inaugural for this portrait, so that we have our minds in the same place. Um, I recommend listening to um, the String Quartet number 14 by Schubert. That's in D minor, and I believe it's D18, but only after you listen to the lecture. Okay, so let's do the summary. Lack of glucose uptake from the decrease in glucose transporter recruitment to the adipocyte membrane in the adipose obtains insulin resistance. This is all initiated as a sequelae by immunocellular infiltration of the adipose, triggering an inflammatory response that is apprehended by cyclooxygenase, lipoxygenase, and P450 enzymatic fatty acid peroxidation linked to inducible nitric oxide synthase expression, corruption of the mitochondrial membrane, and therefore the release of iron from cytochromes, heme-containing iron, generating Fenton reaction reactive oxygen, increased via that mitochondrial electron transport chain and TCA corruption from lipase-mediated fatty acid release, enhancing macrophage and adipocyte lipotoxicity because of the free fatty acid, ultimately generating nascent transcription of leukocyte and lymphocyte within the adipose chemokine signaling plus TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1 beta, and interleukin-6. During the expression at the translational level and post-translational level via glycosylation in the endoplasmic reticulum, thus overloading ER, dolical pyrophosphate and glycosylation systems, inducing an endoplasmic reticulum proteinopathy. That's the unfolded protein response. That furthers ferritosis because of the lack of mitochondrial and peroxisomal integrity due to the corruption of the membrane surrounding those two organelles. Ferritosis from the iron, then leading to necrotosis of the adipose and generally increasing further serum fatty acid burden loaded on serum albumin and, of course, on lipoprotein fractions, and the lack of a generous amount of lipoprotein deposition of circulating triacylglycerol from the overload of the liver apolipoprotein-mediated release of VLDL and LDL from the, hepat from the hepatocytes 
due to the increase in fatty acid uptake. That then leads to ectopic deposition of fatty acid oxides and cholesterol oxides into vital organ systems, leading to the obesity pathophysiological sequelae, which of course includes type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, including hyperplasia, fibrosis, inflammation, atherosclerosis, ischemia. Back at the liver, you have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, kidney, chronic kidney disease, hyperinflammation systemically, CNS damage, morbidity, leading to early death. Hence, the string quartet number 14 by Schubert, which is a good piece of music regardless of its uh, dark uh, atmosphere. It's, it's an excellent piece of music, I should say. Okay, so now let's go back and remember a couple of genes that are tuned up in those resident macrophages now in the adipocytes. Remember the ATMs, right? Adipose tissue macrophages. A family now we're learning, not just type 1, type 2 polarization. Remember we talked about the increases in arginase and nitric oxide synthase. So the arginase generates urea, okay? And L-ornithine. L-ornithine can be used to synthesize polyamines. More on that in a minute. The L-ornithine can also be converted with uh, reacting with ammonia and bicarbonate, and, uh, essentially synthesizing carbamyl phosphate to produce L-citrulline. L-citrulline can be converted to L-arginosuccinate and after a lyse reaction back to L-arginine. So that's a reproduction of arginine. Yes, it is. But the ornithine, increasingly we were learning, can be used to synthesize in organized fashion collagen, which can induce further inflammation in the adipose. How does that happen? Well, the ornithine can be converted to L-delta-pyrrolene-5-carboxylate, which a few reactions later will make L-proline, which is an important amino acid in the triple helix collagen protein system. Now, that same pyrrolene-5-carboxylate can be converted to glutamyl-gamma-semialdehyde, Next reactions leading to L-glutamyl phosphate, and finally, glutamine. So there's yet another utilization of the L-arginine. Polyamines, resynthesis of arginine through citrulline and carbamyl phosphate, glutamine, and proline, amino acid proline, 
ultimately being used for that collagenogenesis in the adipose, which is not what's supposed to be occurring. That's a pathophysiological response, as you might guess. Now, these polyamines, just so you understand, include putrescine, spermidine, spermine, and acetylspermine, 3-acetoamino propanol, and acetylspermidine, and finally, acrolein. Many of these polyamines have pleiotropic toxic effects on nucleic acid metabolism protein synthesis, and lipid transport, and indeed lipid organization into membrane lipid rafts. I remember all this because I gave lectures on it. So understand that these polyamines are being generated also from that ornithine along with the extra collagen in the adipose are all pathophysiological. Okay? Now, Arginase and nitric oxide synthase are competing for the common substrate, as you must have just realized. That is the amino acid L-arginine. So an elevation, an increased elevation of arginase, which we said occurred in some of those macrophage population, subpopulations, but not others, remember? That elevation of arginase will reduce the availability of L-arginine in those macrophages within the adipose for nitric oxide synthase, thus reducing nitric oxide formation. And that uncouples that response. The, the, the uh, nitric oxide synthase enzymatic activity. So what occurs instead of nitric oxide is more superoxide production. Superoxide will rapidly react with the nitric oxide that is synthesized to produce peroxynitrite. Now, both superoxide and peroxynitrite will reduce levels of BH4, which is a cofactor necessary for nitric oxide synthase coupling. Plus, elevated ornithine levels allow for greater production, as I just mentioned, of polyamines, which are cytotoxic at high levels, and proline leading to collagen, which itself is pro-inflammatory. Now, peroxynitrite, that's O-N-O-O minus, that's its chemical formula, plays an essential role in cellular redox homeostasis. Now, excess peroxynitrite will cause pathophysiological responses. So, people have been trying to determine what is the easiest way to measure peroxynitrite. Because as you might guess, because it is a, essentially a very biologically active, short half-life uh, radical, what will occur is that will be almost immediately metabolized. It can be metabolized in nitrite and nitrate, for example. So there are various techniques to trap 
the peroxynitrite that is generated. And most of the systems now use fluorescent probes. So I just wanted to give you an idea of how difficult it is even to measure some of these metabolites, particularly when we're talking about reactive nitrogen or oxygen species got very short half-lives. So I was going to, I could go into more detail of some of the chemistry involved proxy nitrite synthesis and degradation. And I want to do it later because I really like redox metabolism, the level of reactive N and reactive O. But I'm not going to do this lecture. I just want to give you kind of a heads up on that because then we'll be able to talk about instrumentation and be able to measure it. Why is all that necessary? Well, we need to know the relative concentrations of these potentially toxic metabolites. So just expressing the idea, uh, and even with data and evidence uh, generated from the uh, evidence generated from the data after careful reasoning doesn't mean there's a significant concentration of these metabolites to cause actual pathophysiological damage to the lipid, to the carbohydrate, to the nucleic acid, to the polypeptide in the adipose upon infiltration of macrophages and leukocytes, uh, other leukocytes, and of course, lymphocytes. And remember, yesterday I was talking about the fact that you had T-regulatory cells also in the adipose, as long as, as well as, excuse me, CD4 positive T cells, meaning T helper cell population, CD8 positive, the CD8 helper cell populations, natural killer cells, and the cytosine T lymphocytes, and the T-regs. And I was saying how the macrophages, the M2, is kind of like a T-reg, right? It's like another T-reg because it's producing anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10, right? Now, the reason that's significant, it's obvious that the regulatory system controls the runaway inflammatory response, just like any good musical signature can pull back from a melody a little bit to take you into a different... Um, beautiful transition, which is what is often used in romantic music. It's the same kind of thing is happening here. So you have the regulation of this pro-inflammatory response in the adipose from M2 type macrophages and from Tregs that are actually functioning as Tregs. But remember that even those populations of cells can begin to render pathobiochemical responses because of the inhibition locally of the inflammatory response, which could well be mitigating the damage to all the surrounding cellular debris and the intact cells. So limiting the damage of inflammation. Right? But if there's too much expression of Treg or M2 macrophage, therefore debilitating the pro-inflammatory response, there might well be a lack of what was necessary to enhance that inflammation to kill off what mutations and what alterations simply of metabolism may be profoundly affected by epigenetic phenomena, not maybe, I would put maybe in uh, brackets there because I know that's the case and we'll see it later such that the inflammatory response should proceed 
but too much regulation will inhibit it or make it quiescent. And in that case, you have other problems in the adipose. Right? Lack of normal adipose, adipose function. The adipoise of the adipose, if you will. All right, so I just want to get all that out because it's really important. Now, during obesity, triacylglycerol accumulation, the neutral lipid in the adipocytes, which is the standard procedure necessary for adipocytes to carry out their event function. That's what they're doing, storing neutral lipid primarily, right? And then releasing it for, a period, for periods of, um, during periods of long fasting or starvation during the evolution of the mammalian digestive system, right? Now, when that happens, when you get triacylglycerol stress, you get an increase in cell size. And I told you what this causes a couple of um, months ago, maybe. I know it was in the year 2023. You'll get subsequent hypoxia because the capillary network development cannot keep up with fat mass expansion in the adipose in the obesogenic um, sequelae that are occurring as a person's gaining mass through their life. That results in adipocytes that are far away from the vasculature so that levels of molecular oxygen are not adequately supplied, which induces the expression of hypoxia-inducible factor, transcription factor, and that causes adipocyte activation, the production of and release of free fatty acids because of fatty acylipase activity increase, thus promoting pro-inflammatory mediators because of the LOX-COX pathways. Remember, the oxygenated fatty acids leading to the production of interleukin-1 beta and interleukin-1-6, as well as macrophage migration inhibitory factor 1, monocyte chemoattractant protein 1, also known as CCL2, so it is a chemokine, as well as, of course, increases in reactive oxygen. So this reactive oxygen, together with the increased adipocyte diameter, its size, will induce now endoplasmic reticulum stress, corruption of the glycosylation system, leading to a pro-inflammatory insulin-resistant phenotype in the adipocyte. So overall, the pro-inflammatory mediators will induce a recruitment then of circulating, because of the chemokine gradient and the receptors, the chemokine receptors that are being synthesized in the adipose, and now the, the infiltrating macrophages, circulating monocytes will be attracted into the adipose, accumulate, and get further inflammatory damage in the obese adipose. So macrophages respond in many ways in that microenvironment. One of the ways is this polarization. We talked about this many times. Remember, M1 macrophages essentially are considered pro-inflammatory. M2 macrophages acting like a, although they are simply a card-carrying antigen-presenting cell uh, 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 leukocytes, they are acting like Tregs in that system. 
because they are going to work to slow down the inflammatory response. That's why I said that yesterday. Just said it again, just so you understand. So the macrophage responses, along with the combination of the expression of extracellular and intracellular collagen, will further cause the production of more specific cytokines. That's an activation response, a classical activation response, leading to a complete legion of pro-inflammatory stimuli. Now, that often occurs because of infection of my, by microorganisms. So this is not an infection-caused inflammation, although I told you adipose can become infected. So there's that to deal with as well. Okay. So again, you have tumor necrosis factor alpha, you have interleukin 1 beta, and also interleukin 12 and interleukin 23, along with reactive oxygen and nitric oxide, which I think I've pretty much covered. Okay, There's other co-stimulatory uh, proteins on the surface uh, of the macrophages to deal with CD80 and CD86, but we can talk about that later if we have time. Let me check my time, by the way. I'm going to start talking a little bit about superoxide. I just want to make sure I can do this without uh, going over it because you know I hate to do that. Oh, yes, I've got, gosh, almost eight minutes, almost nine minutes. Okay, here we go. Sorry. Superoxide anion is one of the ROS produced by oxidases in a vascular bed. But it can be it can also be synthesized from circulating leukocytes and lymphocytes, and it can certainly be synthesized in the mitochondrion in adipocytes. Now, anion, superoxide anion, will react with nitric oxide. And that is the generations, I told you I was going to do this, of peroxynitrite. So the reaction between NO and superoxide occurs at a diffusion limited rate, which is about six to 10 times greater than the removal of the superoxide, otherwise by a protective enzyme, the copper zinc superoxide dismutase. So the interaction, the chemical reaction between NO and superoxide depletes nitric oxide bioavailability, as you might guess. And that's significant because NO mediates vascular functions, as you know, right? It causes vascular dilation, which means a regulation of smooth muscle tone. And that means translocation of oxygen and, of course, blood pressure, platelet activation, and any ep epithelial and endothelial interactive vascular signaling. So the loss of NO availability because of reacting with superoxide increases that vascular superoxide-mediated response, which then can cause pathogenesis of the endothelia. And that is directly linked to such diseases as atherosclerosis and hypertension. 
Now, besides that, the effects mediated by nitric oxide scavenging, that is, there's evidence that suggests an additional role of superoxide nitric oxide interaction in the modulation of vascular signaling via redox. Now, the peroxynitrite itself can cause vascular damage, as I think I mentioned 10 minutes ago. And it does so by simple oxidation of polypeptide and lipids, which include lipoprotein and apolipoprotein aggregation, specifically LDL, low-density lipoprotein. There is also, if there's high enough levels, that's why I was mentioning that a couple of minutes ago, that peroxynitrite direct cellular toxicity, which can drive the cell right into, oh, any number of programmed cell deaths, maybe initiating some autophagy, but then into programmed cell deaths. And even if we don't get ferritosis or necrotosis, which is going to be pro-inflammatory, even standard canonical uh, apoptosis is removing those cells from the population of functional events too much removal of, say, the adipose tissue, you don't have adequate adipose regulatory combining the homeothermic responses that are occurring because of the increased mass due to the increased obesity. Okay. So there's a whole lot of pathophysiology here one could open up, is what I'm trying to allude to. And we're going to do some of that. I don't want to, I don't want to just emphasize this, but it's really important to to keep track of all of those molecules that are generated because of the initial burden of the introduction via infiltration of macrophages, other leukocytes, and then the family of lymphocytes, I told you, also appear in the obese adipose. Okay. And so that's why... I, when you listen to authentic biochemistry, you get the whole story. You don't just get, well, now we're talking about something like glucose intolerance or insulin resistance, which are very important. But for other reasons, what, what happens downstream from those effects, I'm telling you it's upstream from causing those pathobiochemical responses because those are the real pathologies in the disease that might be targets for pharmaceuticals and might be considered as prodromal markers for understanding the early events of obesity-linked disease. Obviously, the way to prevent this is not with pharmaceuticals uh, and not with specific nutrients, but by decreasing kilocalorie intake by the human being, which is back into free will. Okay. So nitric oxide and superoxide production leading to peroxynitrite is going to then regulate a family of radicals, right? Unpaired electron containing compounds. And those radicals are going to have a tremendous negative effect on the regulation of vascular tonicity via hypertension and various kinds of diseases to the vasculature in the vasculature of humans. 
Now, reduced nitric oxide-mediated vasodilation in arteries and veins is only one effect. That is a direct effect of vascular disease. And that's going to be a direct risk factor whenever there's increased superoxide production, which can come directly from the major players in the electron transport chain. Right? Because remember, one electron step reduction at a time from O2 to water. We went through this in the preliminary lectures, the elementary lectures in bioenergetics, right? where, the, where oxygen ultimately gets completely reduced to H2O. One electron step functions. Any of those steps can lead to the production of reactive oxygen because reactive oxygen is partially reduced form of molecular oxygen, you see? All right, so what else do I want to say here? Essentially, peroxynitrate formation in arteries has a tremendous um, literature in causing vascular disease. Okay? So I think I want to stop there because there's a, I'm going to get into more chemistry of superoxide and not only that, reactive oxygen, reactive nitrogen. Um, and I don't want to just uh, jump into that and get it started. Yeah, okay, it's a 29 minutes. Anyways. Okay, I've done, enough, I've done enough jabbering, I guess. So please uh, enjoy your Friday morning. It's Friday morning here still. Um, again, the middle of September, we're almost on to the great equinox, which is the one I really prefer, to be honest with you, the one that leads to autumn. And it's a Friday. That's another reason to uh, be the fact that I listened to uh, Quartet Number 14 by Schubert. Now, you know that's also called, not by him, but it's called by 